Um, I do have a correction on the announcements. I thought tomorrow was the 5th. Of course, everybody in this room, except for me, knows that tomorrow is not the 5th. It's Monday that's the 5th. Uh, the women's Bible study, the Rachel and Leah six-week study that's going to be coming up soon. Uh, it will be starting on Monday the 5th, okay? Which is also the same time, by the way, as the men's Bible study. So if you, you know, and the kids are here on Monday night, so... Just make it a family affair. Bring everybody. It's perfect. Uh, and it would be wonderful to see everyone there. Uh, we are going through a um, study in the entire Bible. Approximately eight or nine years ago, we started in Genesis. And now we are in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to read the first seven chapter or seven verses here. And of course, you probably heard a lot of these verses at least... Uh, multiple times throughout the year, especially during Christmas, it will be very familiar to you. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan and Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor as in the day of Midian." For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle, the garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. Verse 6. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even to forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And so, Father, tonight, as we uh, start on this uh, study of Isaiah as we continue in this, uh, as we know this long book, that you would open up our eyes, hopefully in a, in a way that maybe we've never seen it before, uh, maybe in a, a continuous way, looking at it from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 66, and, and how uh, everything is in its perfect place, the order of the chapters and, and the order of the verses and, and how we saw in, earlier in the book of, of your holy, holy, holy. And then in chapter 7, the righteousness of God coming to earth, Emmanuel, and now seeing this little baby that's going to be born in a manger who's going to be called God, who will dwell among us and will rule with righteousness and truth. And so, Lord, tonight, help us not to see this just as a Christmas story. Uh, help us not just to see it as something we read once a year. 
but help us to see it through the eyes of you and the one whom you had to write this, Lord, that we would see it afresh today, that you would speak to us wholeheartedly into our hearts. Help us to know that you are here tonight. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. The, the privilege of going through a book, especially a, a big book like Isaiah. And of course, you guys know that this is the second uh, longest book in the whole Bible, second only to uh, Psalms. Uh, but this continuous book of a guy who meets the Savior, God literally sitting on the throne, that coal that is put to his lips, the sending and the preparing of Isaiah for a ministry that would last some 70 years, four different kings. And to see the beginning of his ministry as we are seeing now, being prepared to a people that are hard-hearted and stiff-necked, rebellious, that don't want to hear the word of God. And yet God, in his abundant mercy, is willing to be faithful to a people that are not faithful to him. And so earlier in the book, we saw Isaiah coming into the presence of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, right? And that was in chapter six. And then, of course, the very next chapter, who, what happens to that God? He comes down to earth, Emmanuel, a God with us. The Christmas story in prose. And then we see in chapter nine, the description of God incarnate, Emmanuel. How will he come? As a majestic king riding on a white horse? No, as a child. As a child who will bear the government upon his shoulders. The judgment of God represented by a person in flesh. In verse 1 of chapter 9, it states these truths. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by way of the sea beyond the Jordan and Galilee of the Gentiles. Where have you heard the area of Galilee before? We hear it in the New Testament all the time. It's the ministry of Jesus Christ. Those three years from the age of 30 until the time he goes to Jerusalem and is tried and crucified and buried and resurrected. Those three years of Jesus' teachings are mainly focused on the area of Galilee. The, the sea of Galilee where Jesus would calm uh, the waters. I have a couple of pictures uh, for you guys uh, to see. The first one here is the, the Sea of Galilee. Uh, this would be uh, where the Beatitudes were, were uh, uh, preached by Jesus' very first sermon. And then the next picture here is a map of the region of Galilee where Jesus performed many of the teachings and many of the prophetic events that we're going to see here in chapter 9 foretold literally some 700 years before they would even occur. You can see around the Sea of Galilee the various things that would be happening during the time of Matthew and Mark and Luke 
and John. In Genesis chapter 49, we read about these two tribes. Now, you read these two tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali, and a lot of us, it goes whoop, right over our heads. Who are these guys? I have no idea. Uh, they're sons of Jacob, right? They're somewhere in the middle. You know, they, they weren't of either of the two wives. They were from the concubines. But in chapter 49 of Genesis, we get a prophecy of what will happen to Zebulun and Naphtali. Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall adjoin Sidon. This prophecy that Jacob gave, not just to Zebulun, but to every single one of his sons, starting with the oldest, Reuben, and then going to Simeon and Levi, and then going to Judah, and then all the other sons in sequence, order of birth, Zebulun is put literally at this uh, ocean area, this lake area of the Sea of Galilee. And these are the seas that we see in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, the Galilee region, along with uh, Naphtali. If you were to look at a map of the tribes of Israel, you would see Zebulun and Naphtali in the northern area of uh, Galilee. And if you have the you know, a privilege of going to Israel, uh, you can see a lot of these regions uh, firsthand. Joshua chapter 20, verse 7, it says, So they appointed Kadesh in Galilee in the mountains of Naphtali. This was the region where Jesus would perform most of his ministry, those three years of teaching and miracles, people that were considered backwater people, people that were considered roughnecks, people that were considered fishermen and without any form of education whatsoever. These were the people that Jesus reached out to. Verse 2, it continues on, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. The Holy One, Emmanuel, has come to earth, predicted 700 years before. And where would he come? The very area where Jesus would preach and teach, Galilee, is predicted in the book of Isaiah. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. You rejoice before according to the joy of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor as in the day of Midian. And this goes all the way back to the book of Judges where Gideon stood up to that multitude of people that were beyond count, the Midianites, all those people that were there, and 300 men were able to chase to flight the hosts of Midian. An even greater conquest will come when Emmanuel comes to uh, the earth. Verse 5, for every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. And then verse 6, that, that key verse that ties all these verses together. How will the Messiah come? As a little child, as a baby. For unto us a child is born. 
unto us a son is given. Not only the the child, the, the age, or the frailty of the one who is coming, but also the gender as well. The son of God. Emmanuel, who comes to the earth. What will be his power? And the government will be upon his shoulder. He will rule. And his name will be called. And then these lists of titles that are given only to God himself. What's the first title that is given in this verse? Starts with a W. What does it say? Wonderful. And you, you've probably heard this before in song. You've probably heard this before even on the stage. You know, whether it's a, a carol or some sort of a, a, a card that someone gives to you. And we just read through these titles like they're nothing. Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, right? But do you understand that each and every single one of these titles has a significant meaning to the deity of God? You see, when this verse is quoted not only here, but also in the New Testament as well, as fulfillment of these verses that were written 700 years before they actually happened, the titles were given on purpose. They had significant meaning. Wonderful means unusual or miraculous. You see, the birth of Jesus Christ would be a miracle. Remember, just two chapters earlier in chapter 7, it was quoted that the, the Messiah would come through the birth of a virgin. Unique in the entire history and also the future of humanity. Uh, that, that God, Emmanuel, God incarnate, would come to this earth through a virgin, someone who had never known a man, unusual, a miracle, wonderful. And then the second title is counselor. And this literally means the one who plans and decides. When was this plan put in place that Jesus Christ would come to earth? Not only the Son of God, but God the Son would come to earth. When was this decided? Not 700 years before it took place. Not 4,000 years at the you know, time of Adam and Eve, but even before creation itself existed, the very plan of God that Jesus Christ would come to this earth. There, before creation ever existed, before sin even itself existed, the plan that Jesus Christ would come to the created earth, knowing that we would be in need of a Savior. Decided and planned by God himself, Jesus Christ. Also, the next title there, Mighty God. You understand whenever we see this word mighty in the scriptures, it goes beyond any humanly uh, formed description that we can ever think of. We, we, we think of, you know, might as some sort of power 
uh, that we can muster, whether horsepower or, or these, you know, guys that can lift buses or something like that. Or, or people that, you know, like the Olympics that are coming up, the sumo wrestlers or, or the people that can do amazing feats of strength, whether it's on the parallel bars or, or the rings or some sort of, you know, thing that keeps us in awe. But it goes beyond any form of human comprehension of what power is defined by. This word literally means omnipotent. This word literally means all-powerful. All might is in God. It goes beyond any human comprehension that we can guess at or even begin to imagine. The creator of the entire universe who not only created the earth, but created celestial objects that are so much bigger than earth, that our sun and suns that are even greater than our sun itself. And he holds every single one of them in perfect harmony throughout the universe. Our mighty God, the omnipotent one, also describing Jesus Christ. You see, in every single one of these terms, these can only be ascribed to God. And so when someone comes and says that Jesus is not God, we take them to these verses. And of course, there's other verses as well. I'll show you those later on. But to understand that this child, Emmanuel, God with us, has not only the attributes of God, but the descriptions and titles of God as well. And then the last one there, Everlasting Father. How long has he been in existence? Not only is he omnipotent, not only has he decided everything, not only is he miraculous and unusual, but how long has he been in existence for? Everlasting. Not just when he came to earth as a baby. Not, not just when this fulfillment was uh, accomplished some 700 years later as a child in a manger. No, in existence, eternity past. God has existed and also uh, Jesus Christ as well. There's another amazing verse that puts this very, very succinctly in perfect terms that we can understand in John chapter 17, verses four through five. And this, of course, is is Jesus' high priestly prayer. It's the longest prayer that we have in the Bible that Jesus himself prayed. The whole chapter is in red. It's Jesus Christ starting off saying, looking up into heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come, glorify thy son, that the son may glorify thee. And in verses four and five, it says, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And then in verse five, that keystone verse. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Not only has Jesus Christ existed for eternity, but how long has he had the glory? For eternity. Not only eternity, future, like in the book of Revelation, but also eternity past. 
God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us. And then the last one, and you guys know this title, Prince of Peace. The one who will bring peace between God and man. Whenever someone comes to me and, and says, how can I be saved? What, what are the steps of salvation? Or, or what must I do to be saved? You know, or, you know, uh, there's all these things going on in my life. I need to know God. It's never eloquent the way that people approach or talk about it. But it's necessary. It's heart-wrenching. The very first thing I ask them is, what do you need to be saved from? What do you need to be saved from? And if they have a grasp of, you know, their, their dire need, it's, it's hell or it's sin, right? But do you understand our greatest salvation is from the wrath of God? The wrath of God. We, we are saved from the wrath of God through Jesus Christ. And it goes so much deeper than just our sins or from hell. Because the wrath of God is poured out upon those that are sinners. And how long does that wrath or judgment last? The eternity of hell is real. It goes on and on and on in this torment of the soul forever and ever and ever. And what did Jesus Christ do on the cross for you and I? He took the full wrath, the full brunt of the wrath of God for you and for me. He paid for our salvation with his own blood on the cross. A mere man could not do that. Only God in the flesh could do that for us. Romans chapter 5, verses 10 through 11, it says, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Jesus Christ life. The great exchange, my sin for his righteousness, his righteousness for my sin. What did Jesus do? He reconciled us back to God. He reconciled us into a relationship with God again. Verse 11 of chapter 5 of Romans, it continues on. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we, whom we have now received the reconciliation. It is only through Jesus Christ that we can be reconciled to God. And that just means in a big fancy word that I am now the friend of God. Because before, what was I? His enemy. And that's when Jesus Christ died for us. Verse 7, it continues on of that beautiful Christmas verse that we read. And of the increase of his government and peace 
there will be no end. How long will the glory of Jesus Christ last for? How long will heaven be for? How long will the reign of Jesus Christ be? Forever and ever and ever. There will be no end to it. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom. So not only do we have that he's going to be a child, a babe, that he will be a boy, but also the descendancy or where he will come from, which exact tribe he will be born from. The lineage of who? David. He must be because he is to be a king. To order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. And there's that stamp, that title that we've seen throughout the book of Isaiah already and that we're going to see many, many times to come. The Lord of hosts, the one who is in charge of the very armies of heaven itself. The authority of God establishes this. Verse 8, the Lord sent a word against Jacob and it was fallen on Israel. All the people will know Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria who say in pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will rejoice uh, replace them with cedars. Therefore, the Lord shall set up the adversaries of Rezin against him and spur his enemies on the Syrians before and the Philistines behind, and they shall devour Israel with an open mouth. For all this, his anger is still not turned away, but his hand is stretched out uh, still. On Monday nights, we've been going through the book of Ezekiel in the men's uh, Bible study, being watchmen and what it means. And a lot of these same prophecies are repeated again in the book of Ezekiel. On Wednesday mornings, we've been going through a contemporary of Isaiah, a guy who preached during the same time as Isaiah, a guy by the name of Amos. Of course, he spoke to the northern kingdom of Israel. And at this time, when Isaiah is prophesying, there is literally two kingdoms at this time. There's the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes in the north, and then there's the southern kingdom of Judah. Isaiah is predominantly to the southern kingdom of Judah. Two other men, Amos and Hosea, are to the northern kingdom of Israel during this uh, time. And the prediction is that Ephraim in the area of Samaria will be destroyed. Now, Ephraim is the youngest son of uh, Joseph. And if you remember from Genesis, Joseph had two sons, right? Manasseh, his oldest son, and Ephraim. When he was one of the wealthiest men, the, the upper echelon of the Egyptian society, he had two sons by the daughter of Pharaoh. Now, what happened to those two sons when they came to Jacob to be blessed is you'll, you'll find that there's no tribe of Joseph in the Bible. Will you ever see the tribe of Joseph somewhere on a map? No, of course not, because he got the double blessing or he got the double tribe. So his sons become the tribes representing their dad. Two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. 
And Jacob, when he blessed those two sons, he switched his hands. The right hand was on the younger son, Ephraim, and the left hand was on the older son, Manasseh. And so Ephraim now becomes the predominant tribe in the northern kingdom of Israel. The, the one from whom all the northern kings would come from. The tribe of Ephraim. And where did they live? In the area of, as it says here, Samaria. Now, where have you heard Samaria before? Or maybe you recognize it like this, Samaritan. In the New Testament, right? That, that area where Jesus would go and, and talk to a woman at the well or would give a parable about a good Samaritan, right? All these stories of these people who were half-breeds that the real Jews, the pure Jews, hated. It's from this region, the northern area of Israel, that these people would be destroyed, taken away by the Assyrians, assimilated into the Assyrian Empire, and then returned later as half-breeds or Samaritan. The descendants of Ephraim, the descendants of Zebulun, the descendants of Naphtali, the descendants of Reuben, and Simeon, the descendants of all these northern tribes living around the Sea of Galilee, the ones to whom Jesus would minister to for three years, this land of darkness and rebellion. Jesus is predicted that he would go there. There's this section here that we're going to see over and over again in the next four chapters, or excuse me, next four paragraphs that we're going to see repeated over and over again. And it's this phrase, for all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. There's going to be these phrases, these paragraphs, and then there's going to be this repeated course four times in the next four paragraphs repeated over and over and over again, the warning is coming. You must repent. You must relent of your sins. And yet, despite them being in rebellion, despite them being hard-hearted, stiff-necked, for all this, his anger is not turned away. God will discipline them. God will give them the consequences of their actions. But will he ever take away his protection or his hand? No. His hand will always be reaching out to the people of Israel. Why? Because there is chosen people. He loves them. God will always reach out to his people, despite the fact that he must discipline them. The perfect illustration of this, of course, is the prodigal son. Did the father know that his son had to experience the consequences of his actions? Did he go and, and rescue him from the pigsty? Did, did he go and, and rescue him from all those things that, that he knew was destroying his son's life? No, he didn't rescue him from the consequences. But who was the first one to greet him when he returned? who was the first one to greet him when he came back, his father. Isn't that an amazing picture? 
And it's the same thing with God with us. Yes, there is discipline. There must be discipline. But he is always there to greet us when we repent and we return. Verse 13, for the people uh, do not turn to him who strikes them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts, describing the Israelites. Therefore, the Lord will cut off head and tail from Israel, palm branch and bulrush in that day. The elder and the honorable, he is the head. The prophet who teaches lies, he is the tail. For the leaders of this people cause them to err, and those who are led by them are destroyed. Who will get the destruction, the discipline, the correction from God first? The ones who know the difference. The leaders. The religious. The ones who have the law. Who will receive the discipline first? As it says in the book of Ezekiel, it starts in the house of God. It starts amongst those that already know. Because it is easy to have that facade, that religious facade in front of us. And who's the only one that knows our hearts? Those inner sins that we have. Those hidden pockets within our hearts that we hide from everybody else. Who sees those things? It's God. Verse 17, therefore the Lord will have no joy in their young men, nor have mercy on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is a hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. What does God see within his chosen people, the Israelites? They're just a bunch of hypocrites. They know, they know the law. They, they have the scriptures, but do they actually do them? And then that phrase that's going to be repeated over and over again for all this, his anger is not turned away. There will be wrath. There will be judgment. There will be consequences. But his hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burns as the fire. It shall devour the briars and the thorns and kindle in the thickets of the forest. They shall mount up like rising smoke. Though the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is burned up and the people shall be as fuel for the fire. No man shall spare his brother. Which land is this talking about? This isn't some foreign country. Which land is this talking about? The Israelite nation, the wrath of God is being poured out upon them. And you know, you live in California. What is a wildfire like? Just one spark, boom, it takes off, right? We, we, we pay, you know, firefighter. My, I have a brother who's a firefighter. And, and you know, he, he, you know, when he was younger, he doesn't like it now. But when he was younger, he loved the, the fire season because there's tons of overtime, right? Especially in California. Uh, the, it gets longer and longer and longer, you know. And just that understanding that that dry brush is so easily started, right? But every single time God's hand is reaching out. Verse 20, and he shall snatch on the right hand and be hungry. He shall devour on the left hand and not be satisfied. Every man shall eat the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh shall devour Ephraim, and Ephraim shall devour Manasseh. Together they shall be against 
Judah. The brothers are fighting. We call that civil war. If you've ever seen a movie on the civil war in America, it was brother against brother. It was north against south, cousin against cousin. What is it like in the nation of Israel at this time? Literally brother against brother, tribe against tribe. Ephraim against Manasseh, the two sons of Joseph fighting one another and then turning their fighting against Judah, the southern kingdom for which we get Jerusalem as well. The infighting, the civil war, was the nation of Israel ever supposed to fight itself? No, of course not. They were supposed to be united. It was only for 60 years during the reign of David and during the reign of King Solomon that there was actually a united Israel under one monarchy. All the rest of the time of the history of Israel, they were always divided. You look at before David, there were just a bunch of tribes during the time of Judges. You look after King Solomon, it's two big nations fighting amongst each other. Literally hating one another. Jeroboam putting up those golden calves and saying, worship these instead of going to Jerusalem. Stay here in Israel. These are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. Don't you remember way back during the time of Aaron? Gaff came out of the fire, right? All these things are predicted and come true. Both of the sons of Joseph will fight. And then that phrase, third time it's being used now. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Chapter 10, verse 1. Woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees, who write misfortune which they have prescribed to rob the needy of justice, to take what is right from the poor of my people, that widows may be their prey, and that they may rob the fatherless. What will you do in the day of punishment and in the desolation which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help, and where will you leave your glory? Without me, this is God speaking, capital M-E, they shall bow down among the prisoners, and they shall fall among the slain. What will happen to the nation of Israel? In 722 BC, Assyria will come in and literally take away the people of Israel with fish hooks in their mouth, with meat hooks in their mouth, and will lead them away to a foreign land. Predicted, of course, in the minor prophets, Hosea, the book of Amos. And in that phrase, again, fourth time now, for all this, his anger is not turned away. But my favorite author, my favorite pastor, uh, past president in, in, uh, that I've ever read, his name is Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said, thank God for the buts in the Bible. Do you understand what this but means? That yes, I must suffer the consequences of my sin, but who is there reaching out his hand the whole time? Return, return, repent, come back. I am here. Just like the prodigal's father, just like the one who sinned and walked away, the very first one to greet him, in fact, who ran to him when he returned was his father. Thank God for the butts in the Bible. 
Verse 5, woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. And of course, this is now the prediction literally of what's going to happen. And Isaiah, speaking to the southern tribe of Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah in Jerusalem, watching all these events taking place, knows that it's going to be Assyria that's going to come in. God's going to use this kingdom that had before, during the time of Jonah, actually repented. You guys remember the story of Jonah, right? It's not just a Sunday school story. It's not just a VeggieTales movie. This is a real event that took place. And who did Jonah go to? The nation of Nineveh. 120,000 souls, right? And as he's sitting up there on that hill, pouting and, and crying to God, saying, why are you saving them, God? He himself, with a hard heart, unrepented sin in his own life, looking at this people that he thought deserved judgment, the Ninevites from the very top to the very bottom repented. And who now is going to be the rod that God uses to discipline the nation of Israel? That same nation. Nineveh, who would later on become the Assyrian Empire, would be used by God as his rod to discipline the Israelites. And the staff in whose hand is my indignation. God's going to use this nation to bring punishment, discipline upon his own people, the people of Israel. I will send him against my, or an ungodly nation, my ungodly nation, and against the people of my wrath. I will give him charge to seize the spoil, to take the prey, to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Who will give the Assyrian empire power to be able to overtake the nation of Israel? God himself. Yet he does not mean so, nor does his heart think so, but it's in his heart to destroy and cut off not a few nations. For he says, are not my princes altogether kings and not Kalna, nor Chik, or Karmic, Karmic, Karchemish, nor Hamath, nor Arpad, nor Samaria like Damascus, as my hand has found the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images excelled those of Jerusalem and Samaria, as I have done to Samaria and her idols, shall I not do also to Jerusalem and her idols? You see, not only has Israel turned their back upon God, the northern kingdom of Israel, capital Samaria, but also the southern kingdom of Judah, capital Jerusalem, would also be destroyed. Not by the Assyrians. They're going to have a revival later on. We're going to see that in the book of Isaiah during the time of King Hezekiah. But later on by the Babylonians, God would also bring about judgment to the southern kingdom of Israel or southern kingdom of Judah, Jerusalem, later on. Verse 12, therefore it shall come to pass when the Lord has performed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem that he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his haughty works. All these things in this one chapter literally spanned centuries, literally spanned 300 years of time from the time when Israel himself will be destroyed to when Judah himself will be destroyed as well. 
The Assyrian Empire will be destroyed by the Babylonian Empire. All these predictions, not only for the nation of Israel, but for the entire world. History, his story, God working throughout history to bring all these things that you slept through in your 11th grade history class. All these things that are predicted in Isaiah are now going to become true. At least I did. I'm sure you guys didn't, you know. It was ninth grade for me. <clears throat> Verse 13, for he says, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I am prudent. Also I have removed the boundaries of the people and have robbed their treasuries, so I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. My hand has found like a nest the riches of the peoples, and as one gathers eggs that are left, I have gathered all the earth. And there was no one who moved his wing nor opened his mouth with even a peep. Shall the axe boast itself against him who chops with it? Or shall the saw exalt itself against him who saws with it? Or as a, if a rod would yield it, wield itself against those who lift it up? Or as a, if a staff could lift up? as if it were not wood. And we read these things and, and we kind of have to picture this. If you just uh, just read it, whether it's a devotional or, or just going through the book of Isaiah, you know, the Bible in a year, and you have to read your three chapters every day, your, your five chapters on Sundays, and, and you kind of just rush through things like I used to do when I used to read the Bible. As a, as a young person, you know, I just read the Bible. But if you actually look at this verse, what is it saying here? In this sarcastic manner that Isaiah is preaching and prophesying in, what is he actually saying? It's like taking that hammer and that hammer that's sitting on the bench or, or the saw that's sitting on the bench or the axe that's sitting on the bench. And all of a sudden it gets a mind of its own and it starts attacking you. What is a tool? What's the purpose of a tool? The purpose of a tool is to be wielded in the correct manner. Hopefully you don't hammer with a saw or saw with a hammer. Unless, you know, sometimes you're just desperate or whatever, you know. You just want to destroy it. But, but you understand the illustration here. A tool must be wielded. A tool must have someone to use it. And who is using the empire of Assyria? Who is in charge of Assyria to bring destruction upon Israel? God himself. The rod, the staff. Assyria is just a tool in the hand of God. Verse 16 Therefore, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, will send leanness among his fat ones, and under his glory he will kindle a burning like the burning of a fire. So the light of Israel will be a fire, and his holy one for a flame. It will burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day, and it will consume the glory of his forest and his fruitful field, both 
soul and body, and they will be as when a sick man wastes away. Then the rest of the trees of his forest will be so few in number that a child may write uh, them. All this, again, predicted in the, nation, in the book of Isaiah, but also by his contemporary Amos. If you read the book of Amos, and by the way, we've been going through the book of Amos on Wednesday uh, morning, 6 a.m., uh, we've been having the privilege of seeing the sarcastic writings uh, of Amos. And literally, what Amos does in his sarcastic tone, he's putting within a, a form of writing, literally bringing right to the face of the comfortable people in Israel, bringing right to the face of the rich people that are in a rut the people of Israel who are comfortable upon their ivory couches, who literally he's calling fat cows that are sitting in their nice, comfortable palaces while they boss other people around and ignore the poor of the land. And God is going to bring judgment upon his people. So much so that those rich, fat people will waste away and be led away with fish hooks in their mouth. Verse 20, and it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as have escaped of the house of Jacob will never again depend upon him who defeated them, but will depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. Something amazing is going to happen when God brings back his people. When God brings back not just Judah, not just Benjamin, but all the tribes together. And they will again be united, not underneath a, a human king, but under a God king. Uh, underneath the reign of the Messiah, that remnant of people that will come back to the land. And we'll see this at the end of the book of Isaiah, where there will be a thousand year reign, the millennial kingdom, Jesus Christ sitting on the throne, again, turning his attention to the Israelites as a whole, all the Israelites, not just the city of Jerusalem, not, not just to one or two tribes, but to all the tribes of Israel, no longer divided, no longer separated by tribes or, or nationalities, but brought back together underneath the reign of Emmanuel, God with us, the Messiah here on earth. And what, what does it say? In verse 21, the remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to whom? To the mighty God. Where did you hear that title at? Where did you hear that title at? Right at the beginning. Chapter 9. Remember? He who is called the mighty God. This little child. Emmanuel. Here on the earth. Messiah. Verse 22. For through your people, O Israel, as the sand of the sea, a remnant of them will return. The destruction decreed shall overflow with righteousness as the Lord God of hosts will make a determined end in the midst of all the land. Does God always have a plan? Yes, he does. Does God always know when things will happen? And just like we've seen, just within a, a chapter and a half, seeing this long sequence of events 
literally predicted in detail. God, the Lord God of hosts, has determined it all. He knows what will happen. Verse 24, therefore thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not be afraid of the Syrian. He shall strike you with a rod and lift up his staff against you in the manner of Egypt. For yet a little while, the indignation will cease as will my anger in their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will stir up a scourge for him like the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb. This happened during the time of the judges with Gideon when he was able to destroy the Midianite hordes. Or as his rod is on the sea, so will he lift it up in the manner of Egypt. And of course, that was the, the ten plagues that came upon the land of Egypt. And you can look up those things in, in Judges chapter 7 and then Exodus chapter uh, 14. Verse 27, it shall come to pass in that day that his burden will be taken away from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck. And the yoke will be destroyed because of the anointing oil. There's a significance that is being said here. And, and we see it in the Hebrew. It's actually this word messiah, where we get the word Messiah from. Who is the anointed one? Who, who is the one who would come as the literal anointing of God himself with the authority of God? himself as well, the Messiah, the Messiah, the one who is God incarnate, Emmanuel. Verse 28, he has come to Aeth, he has passed Migron at Michmash, she has attended to his equipment, they have gone along the ridge, they have taken up lodging at Geba, Rama is afraid, Gibeah of Saul has fled, lift up your voice, O daughter of Galim, cause it to be heard as far as Laish, O poor Anath, Madmen Mad has fled. Madmen has fled. The inhabitants of Gibbon seek refuge. As yet, he will remain at Nob that day. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. And uh, you know, you read this and you say, "I have no idea what those." towns are. I have no idea what those cities are. It's just like someone coming to Bakersfield and say, you know, you'd start describing Tachapi and Taft and, you know, uh, Green Acres and Oildale and all, all these, we, you know, anyone that comes from another area has no idea what these places are. Same thing with us when we read about Israel. But if you look at a map, every single one of these towns are lined up from north to south, literally lined up to Jerusalem. The pathway that a nation would take as they would conquer city after city after city after their city, marching toward the capital city of Jerusalem. And again, we're going to see these events later on in the book of Isaiah during the reign of King Hezekiah. We're going to see these events take place where the Assyrian Empire is going to start marching down toward Jerusalem, surrounding Jerusalem. And I'm going to spoil the story for you. It's only going to take one angel to free Israel. It's only going to take one, one angel to free Jerusalem. God will protect his people. The cities that are listed here get closer and closer to the capital of Jerusalem. 
Each town that is conquered has another step toward the impending defeat of the holy city. But verse 33 and 34, and we'll end it here. Behold the Lord, the Lord of hosts, who's in charge of every single one of the, of the armies of heaven, who's in charge of every single one of those fully armed angels, who's in charge of every single one of the cherubim and the seraphim that we saw back in chapter six, who's in charge of every one of the mighty ones of the armies of God, the Lord God of hosts, the Lord of hosts will lop off the bow with terror. Those of high stature will be hewn down and the haughty will be humbled and he will cut down the thickets of the forest with iron and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. Who will protect Jerusalem? Who will stand up for his people? The mighty one of Israel. And just as a side comment here, this contrast between haughty and humble is going to be seen throughout the entire book of Isaiah. Because what will always happen to the proud, what will always happen to the haughty, what will always happen to those who lift themselves up. In fact, if you read the next couple of chapters, we're going to see the fall of the very first one who was proud. The very first sin that was ever committed the one who said, I am beautiful, more beautiful than any other angel in the entire creation of heaven itself. I think I deserve the praise. Read ahead and you'll see that story. We'll end it here and then we'll pick it up next week in chapter 11. Dear Father, we thank you so much for the privilege that we have to come before you. Help us to be humble. Help us to understand what it means to be submissive. Help us to understand what it means to put our uh, pride down. Uh, to look to you for our sustenance, Lord. To understand that it is you that has every single detail laid out. Lord, so many times, please forgive me for wanting to do things my way. Please forgive us for wanting to do things our way. And instead, help us to be like your son, who was the perfect example of submissiveness. That even to the point of death on a cross, these predictions that would take place during the time of Isaiah, the predictions of what the Messiah would do coming to this earth as a little child, coming to this earth through the line of David, coming to this earth through a virgin uh, birth, and then going to the cross to die for us so that our sins could be taken away. So the wrath of God could be taken from us and onto him. Help us to see the humbleness of the Savior. And help us to emulate that in our own lives, Lord. Help us to submit to you. We thank you so much for the privilege that we have to go through this amazing book. And I ask you bless these my friends and my family. I ask you use us for your glory this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. God bless you.